Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Bob Schieffer, CBS News contributor and former host of Face the Nation. He discussed his new book, Overload, Finding the Truth in Today's Deluge of News, as well as his thoughts on the 2016 election, media coverage of the White House, and the future of news. The conversation was moderated by Nick O'Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. to welcome Bob Schieffer back to campus. Bob has been a reporter for more than half a century and was a part of CBS News for 46 years. He's anchored the Saturday edition of CBS Evening News for 23 years, became the network's chief Washington correspondent in 1982, and was named anchor and moderator of Face the Nation in 1991. He's written four books, won numerous awards, and covered every presidential race since 1972. And for a year and a half, he was our Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow. We're delighted to welcome him back. He has a new book, which we have a few copies of, of called Overload, about the most recent uh, presidential campaign. Bob, it is great to have you here. And I'm just going to go right for the jugular on the first question. <laughs> Uh, I think if, if, if I did my math right, uh, the last campaign was your 14th presidential campaign. Yep. And uh, what happened? <laughs> you know, somebody has already written a book with that title. So. <laughs> Touche. Well done. I'll, I'll let her answer that question. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you. Let me just say one thing, Nico. I... I uh, have been up to Harvard many times over the years, but this experience that I had uh, spread over three semesters. I'd come up for two visits of about a week uh, for each semester. Was was without question one of the most fun, interesting, and I also say I'd learned something uh, while I was here. And I, I want to thank you and all the folks up here. And I, I'm so proud to call myself a Harvard man now. That. <laughs> I still keep my Harvard card here. <laughs> Show it to all my friends down in Fort Worth. And of course, they say, well, where is that? But anyway, uh, <laughs> it, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. 2016 was the most unusual campaign in the most unusual year uh, that I can recall in all the more than 40 years that I was in Washington. And... Uh, in the book, I talk about people say, well, what was so unusual about it? And I say, well, you know, here you had somebody flying around uh, in his own airplane uh, telling people he was a man of the people. Uh, it was the year that uh, uh, Jeb Bush raised $115 million. It did absolutely no good. But my favorite and most unusual, unusual moment of the campaign, I think, was when John Boehner said that Ted Cruz was Lucifer in the flesh. I'd never heard anybody accuse somebody of that, but the best part of that was the Devil Worshippers Society put out a written press release and denied it. They said he's not one of us. Now I ask you, how, can anyone remember anything that, that goes beyond that? It, it was also... Uh, I think uh, happening as it did, uh, Nico, in the midst of this communications revolution with the coming of social media, uh, with this uh, so-called uh, nothing is really true, it's just what uh, seems to be true. It was an election that was not really about issues, it was more about attitudes. Uh, in every way, uh, this was an election unlike anything uh, that we've had in the past. and. I think it underscores uh, the real weakness in our electoral system we, that we have now that's been so overwhelmed by money that you have all of these gurus and political consultants who are making literally millions of dollars out of this. Uh, but I have to ask the question, are the candidates that the system is now producing any better than even the candidates back in the old smoke-filled room days? And my argument uh, would be uh, no. 
Uh, I mean, think about this. Uh, you had on the Republican side, uh, you had a reality TV star who winds up with the nomination. And on the other side, uh, and I preface this by saying she's, I think she's a good woman. Uh, I thought she was an excellent senator. She represented her constituency well when she was in the Senate. But how is it that the Democratic Party managed to come up with only one candidate with any national following whose, whose main opposition came from someone who was not even a Democrat, uh, who said, and I've never heard anybody in American politics say this, that I am not a capitalist. And I remember when, uh, when Bernie said that and his campaign manager uh, called me up and said, you know, you're being really hard on Bernie. And I said, well, I'm just quoting him. He said it. And he said, yeah, but he said it only once. <laughs> but be that as it may, uh, how is it that it came down to those two? Uh, why, why weren't there other candidates on that side? And that's why I think our political electoral system, the way we go about doing all this, is in worse shape now than our roads and bridges, Nicole. Recognizing that, uh, that 2016 was, a, was just really uh, uh, historically without precedent on, precedent on multiple fronts, what what presidential campaign did it most remind you of and why? Like in your experience, what 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 touchstones were there for you in this one? I don't think it reminded me of anything uh, that I'd ever seen before. I mean, you know, we've had some tough campaigns. We had George Wallace when he came on. Uh, we had, um, you know, I was there in 1968 uh, when I saw the country just basically come apart. I mean, we were worried that the, that the whole thing was going to come apart. And I, I think the only good news from that is the country remained strong. We did survive it, and uh, which I, I think it just underlined, you know, what a good constitution we have. And uh, But uh, I, I don't remember anything like this. I mean, when you, you know, you had uh, political discourse and a debate on body parts, uh, and their size. I mean, I, I don't remember any campaign uh, that Do, broke down along those lines. You know, the New York Times editorial board a couple of days ago published uh, kind of a guide to uh, presidential etiquette as uh, as evidenced by uh, President Trump. And part of what they did is they talked about how uh, when Obama wore short sleeves uh, a number of Republicans criticized him as demeaning the office of the presidency. Former chief of staff Andy Card uh, had gone on the record about that. And they were they kind of were pretty heavy handed trying to make the case that here what Republicans have were so aggressive in criticizing uh, Obama for uh, being too informal for the presidency. And here we have Donald Trump. What, what do you make of the. What do you make of the paradox of Donald Trump for the Republican Party? Well, I, I think Trump did manage to go beyond informal uh, when, when he was conducting his campaign. But I think, Nick, of what this was, this was not a, a campaign about issues. It was a campaign about attitudes. I, I've interviewed Donald Trump going back to the time that he uh, got that ice skating rink freeze over in, in Central Park way back there, more than 30 years ago, and that was a great story. Uh, and I've interviewed him many times since, but I'd never seen him or heard him out on the stump. And I wanted to, uh, during the, during the uh, South Carolina primary, uh, there was this young woman that, who was my research assistant up here, and I later hired to work with me to cover the campaign this year, Lucy Boyd. We went to a rally he was holding uh, in, in South Carolina, and I said, now, Lucy, here's, here's what we do. You go on that side of the room, and I'll go on this side of the room before he speaks, and just ask these people, why do they like Donald Trump? Why, why are, they, do they, are they coming because they like him, or why are they here? But why do they like him? We probably, between the two of us, talked to maybe 40 people, and to a person, uh, if, if we interviewed 40 people, 38 of them said, I just like him because he's not afraid to speak his mind. He's not afraid to say what he believes. And they weren't interested in the details. They, were, they weren't interested in his programs. They were interested in his attitude and his willingness to speak up. 
And he, he spoke in the language that they all understood. I mean, we look back at the political dialogue during this, this campaign, and it was more like a, a thread on a blog post than it was like the kind of political uh, dialogue that we're used to. I mean, somebody posts something on a blog, uh, and then somebody else puts on it, no, you're a jerk. And then somebody else said, no, you're the one who's a jerk. And then the first guy said, no, you're a blankety-blank jerk. And, and it, they, they kind of go from, from the inane to the profane is, is the way these, these threads always end up. Because I'm sorry to say in, in today's culture, that's how we talk a lot of the time. We don't use uh, proper grammar when we're, we're uh, answering a post or answering our email. We take shortcuts. So Trump spoke in a language that I think a lot of people were, were comfortable with. And he did what Hillary Clinton was never able to do. He crafted a message that kind of cut through all the chatter to those people who felt they were basically getting screwed, who, who felt they were being left behind. And a lot of times, you know, in these rural areas where we no longer have newspapers, where people uh, uh, can't afford the news apps, uh, where the, a lot of times the only news they're getting, they're getting on their Facebook page, uh, they, they were comfortable with it. And, and he told them, you'll not be forgotten. And whether they believed him or not, they thought things were so bad that they, they took a flyer on it. And I think in the end, that's why I won. And you spent, you spent the last couple of years crisscrossing the country and trying to understand what's happening. And what, what did you learn? Well, what I learned is <laughs> there is a great divide right now. And, uh, you know, the, the, the divide is wider and deeper uh, than it's ever been. Our our uh, politics has been so overwhelmed by money. I just want to stop you right there. You yeah. think the divide is deeper than it was in 1968? Well, no, I, 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 and that's that's a point well taken. I mean, uh, people were really really upset, but so we're not at rock bottom yet. No, uh, but we're we're right around there. I mean, we don't know what rock bottom is. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, uh, uh, what, what's the most optimistic thing that I could say right now? And I said, I think we're probably at rock bottom, you know, so there's, there's no way to go but up. But it was a different kind of a division, uh, I think, in 1968 than, than what we're seeing now. Uh, that was you know, it was all because of the war, and it was suddenly people were were going to get drafted, and the and the deferments weren't good anymore, and and we could at least and that led to uh, questions about young versus old, rich versus poor, and all all the other things. This thing now is is people are just not ready to agree with anybody on anything, and not ready to make a rational. Uh, you know, rational arguments. They just have it in their mind that this is the way it is, and if the other side, they've either made it up or they're speaking from a false premise of some kind. And and I think this is because of what's happened to, you know, how how we elect our politicians now. And, and what's happened is that politics has become so odious, and, and the road to public office is so difficult that our best and brightest just want nothing to do with it. Uh, I tell the story, I had this young assistant that was working for me, and, and she, she started dating a congressman who's a very nice young man, I won't tell you his name or his party affiliation, up on Capitol Hill, and, and they had a couple of dates. And she, she went home and told her dad about it, and it was like he thought she was bringing home some bank robber or something. You know, he, who is he? I mean, what does dating mean? I mean, how often are you going out? I mean, what's this all about? And, and I mean, she wasn't all that interested in the first place, and, it, and it, it didn't amount to anything. But I thought back to, you know, when I was a little boy, my grandmother was absolutely convinced that I was going to grow up to be president of the United States. And that's because that's what every grandma thought about her grandson. But think about this. How long has it been since you've heard anybody say, I hope my child grows up to be a politician? You will hear more people ask for the recipe for airline food than you will hear <laughs> ask that question. 
uh, people just, our political class has become so reviled that, that people just, just want nothing to do with it. And, and we have got to find, I mean, this is kind of corny to say, we've got to find some way to change that. I mean, we've got to find some way to get our best and brightest turned back toward public service, not turning against it. And more and more, I mean, they just don't want to fool with it. I mean, who wants to get elected to office, Nico, and come to Washington and discover you've got to spend maybe 10 hours a week or something like that making cold calls to people, begging them for money? And that's what they all do. I mean, what committee you get on in the House now depends on how much money you're able to raise for the party. That's one of the, the criteria now for people. Uh, people just simply don't want anything to do with this. And, and uh, yeah, and we're not going forward on this problem. We're going backward on uh, being overwhelmed by money. I ran a, when I was writing this book, one of the interesting things that I didn't know, uh, in 19, by 1975, and this is after the Nixon administration, 32 people had been indicted and had gone to prison or had paid substantial fines uh, for campaign finance law violations. You know what? Every single thing they went to jail for is now legal. We don't have any campaign finance laws anymore, and basically we have no election laws of any, of any, uh, uh, any importance. It's just kind of a free whatever you want to do to go do it. And, uh, so, so you said that American, uh, that politicians and running for office, that's reviled in America today. But do, do you think that's fair? Should it be reviled? Or, or have we kind of culturally, and in part has the news media, kind of painted a much darker picture than is the reality? I think it is a reality. And uh, I, I think people rightly ask these questions. I mean... You know, why would somebody like Olympia Snow, who would have been reelected had she decided to stand for reelection, uh, well respected in the Senate, uh, well respected in her state, and she said, I simply think I can get more done out of office than I can in the United States Senate. Well, think about that. A seat in the Senate of the most powerful nation in the history of the world and you think it's not worth your time? And I think she could, she could explain to you why. Because what does the government do? It doesn't do anything. It sits there in a constant state of gridlock. And no wonder people out in the country feel that, you know, they're not getting their money's worth out of this. I can understand why they were frustrated. Hmm. What, uh, you write a little bit in the book about the challenges of covering this kind of political dynamic mm -hmm. as a journalist, right? Uh, I think one of the subtitles is, how do you solve a problem like the Donald, mm -hmm. right? What, what, how do you, how do you cover a, uh, how do you cover a president who just dismisses any criticism uh, as fake news? How do you cover uh, uh, an elected, elected officials who, uh, uh, who, whose primary focus and purpose is fundraising and who can be dismissive of the facts or the realities mm -hmm. of I think you life. do it with great difficulty, but I think the, the key to doing what we do is understanding what we do and what politicians do. The politician is there to deliver a message. The role of the media is to check out that message and find out if it's true and a report on what its impact will be uh, on the government. Uh, we are not the opposition party, as, as some in the Trump administration tried to picture us. We, we, we are not there to argue with the politicians. We're there to check out their message. That's what the assignment was that the founders gave us. Uh, and it won't always make us the most uh, popular person in the room, but if we do that right, uh, we have performed a crucial service for democracy. I mean, I think you know, I was on the Colbert show last night and I said, look, nobody wants a country where the only information we get about the government comes from the government. I mean, that's, that's how it works in a totalitarian society. In our kind of democracy, citizens 
have access to independently gathered information, and we're the gatherers, that they can compare to the government's version of events. And if we do that right, then we've, we've done a very good thing. And it's, it's as important to a democracy as the, uh, as the right to vote. And when people try to undermine uh, the media in this country, when they try to undermine our, our government institutions, I think they are, are, are doing a disservice, and I think they are, uh, they are uh, they're doing something that is not, not good for democracy. And, but we just have to remember, we're not the opposition party. We're the people who ask the questions and find out if they're telling the truth. What's our weapon? Asking questions. And we have to keep asking them until uh, we get an answer. And if we can do it right, then it's good. Do you feel like when you're traveling the country and talking to people, do you feel like people understand that's the role of the press? No. No, I think many people, you know, when you go into a donut shop, you don't go in there and uh, with the idea of finding out how they make donuts and how much they do this and that. You buy the donuts because they taste good. That's, that's why you, you buy the donuts. People read the newspaper, they, they go to their news sources to find out what the news is. They're not going to stop and think, well, I wonder, you know, how this happened. How did they get that? How does a reporter cover the news and all of that? Uh, most people, and, and there's no reason they should, uh, have spent a lot of time thinking about how you put together a news story. They just want to know what the result is. They want to know what information you've gathered that's going to help them uh, decide whether they ought to uh, you know, vote for this guy or that, or how their uh, their tax money is being spent, all that sort of thing. So when I wrote this book, people said, "Is this a book uh, in defense of journalism?" It's it's not, but I hope uh, because I've interviewed a lot of people, uh, reporters, editors, news executives in there. I hope it will give people a better understanding of how we go about our work. Uh, because, you know, the fact is, people say, is there bias in the media? Sure, there is. I mean, uh, but the majority of reporters that I know, the majority of editors that I know, uh, are simply hardworking people who are trying to get the story and get it before their competitor gets it and get it right. I mean, that's, that's what drives most people in journalism. And so I hope people might get a little better understanding of that. I talk about, you know, there's some very good news going on right now, uh, Nico, uh, in journalism, and that is uh, this model that the uh, Washington Post has basically uh, gone to. I mean, they, they have completely reinvented uh, their, their company. It's not just a newspaper company anymore. It's, it's a media company. And they're putting their product out on a variety of platforms. Uh, they're putting heavy emphasis on, on the digital product. It, they no longer save scoops just for the, for the paper newspaper. Uh, they put out newsletters. They put out running analysis. Uh, they even have a video company now. I mean, a video division at the Washington Post. Uh, I, I remember I wrote an op-ed. They asked me to write an op-ed during, uh, during the campaign about the role of a moderator in a presidential debate, and I did, and this wound up in four different platforms, including the video division, called me and said, can you come down there, we pull some news clips, and we'll do this, hmm. and so I did, uh, and, and it was fun. Uh, the New York Times is doing much the same thing, but these companies, and, and, and the good news for all of journalism is, is that the Post made money for the last two years. They've been in the black for the last two years, and not many newspapers can say that. But the other part of it is the Post has what every newspaper wishes it had, and, and that is its own billionaire. Jeff Bezos bought the newspaper, and he was smart enough to realize he had the best newspaper editor in America, Marty Barron, who was here at the, at the Boston Globe, that a lot of you are, are familiar with the work that he did there. But Bezos told, told uh, Barron, you run the newspaper and I'll run the business. And, and that's basically what they've done. And, and, and they hired 60 reporters this year. And I, I don't know of any other newspaper in the country that could afford to do that. But looking at the Post and the Times right now, they're engaged in this old-fashioned newspaper war. 
And, and of course, it's those of us who are, are readers and consumers of this who are, who are benefiting from this. The, uh, the Times, I did an interview with Elizabeth Bumiller, who's the uh, Times uh, Washington Bureau Chief. She now has six White House correspondents. In the old, and the, and the Post has seven. I think they have seven just because the Times has six. But anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's beside the point. But in the old days, everybody, it's a morning paper. I used to work at a morning paper. Everybody rolled in around 10 or 11 o'clock and, you know, uh, got coffee and stuff like that. The beat reporters went out to cover their beats. Everybody came back to the office probably around 5.30 or 6, and they had one 7 o'clock deadline, and everybody went home. It doesn't work that way anymore. Uh, the Post now has two people on tweet patrol. Uh, uh, two of the six White House correspondents uh, go on duty at 6 a.m. And there's an editor that goes on duty at 6 a.m. because they know there's going to be uh, heavy news there. And uh, they, they trade around these uh, various assignments uh, on the White House team. But everybody has uh, adopted to this. Wall Street Journal is doing much the same thing. I, I think they have four or five White House correspondents now. And you know what's kind of interesting about this, just for those in journalism, you know, uh, during Watergate, the Washington Post had one White House correspondent, his name was Carol Kilpatrick, and Woodward and Bernstein never set foot in a White House briefing. And I remember when they went through all this the rigmarole at the start of the Trump administration where he might not have uh, daily briefings and they might move the briefings across the street. And I thought to myself, do you really think that's going to stop any journalistic organization from covering the White House? Of course not. And, you know, I think our role as journalists, if they say we're going to have the White House briefing every day uh, over at the Washington Monument, we, we show up and cover it and report whatever they say. But in the meantime, in between time, we're doing a lot more than just depending on what they put out at the White House briefing. And as we've seen in this White House, uh, you never know what's coming next. Let me just add, this is a really long answer to a, to a good uh, short question, which is the best kind of uh, questions. But uh, people used to ask me, uh, What's your favorite beat? Because I covered all of them in Washington. And they always say, I bet it's the White House, right? And I said, well, you know, you get good fancy luggage tags and all that. Uh, but the fact is, everybody at the White House works for the same guy. <laughs> so that's going to make it a little harder to get the news. And I say, what I loved was covering Capitol Hill because every single person up there is an independent contractor. And that's, that's where you get the news. That's where your sources are. Well, you know, that's no longer apt. And you're talking about what's the difference now in this White House because you have as many factions in this White House as you have up on Capitol Hill. They all hate each other. They, you know, they're all willing to talk to you uh, on background. Uh, they all have their, their own spokesmen. And so it, it's covering the White House now is more like covering Capitol Hill used to be. So huh. it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting place for a reporter to be. And there are some very good reporters over there right now. Uh, the Times and the Post obviously are great, but the people like Politico and, and uh, some of these really good uh, digital sites, and there are some really good ones out there, are really, really doing good work. All right, I got two more questions, and I'll open it up to the audience for questions, so get your questions ready. My, my first, uh, my penultimate question is, what is, why did you call the book Overload? Why is that title? Well, it's uh, because we are so overwhelmed now with information we have more we have access to more information than any people in the history of the world but are we wiser or are we just simply overwhelmed with so much information we can't process it and my answer right now is is we're overwhelmed uh but we're right at the beginning of this uh you know we all look back on the on the invention of the printing press and how it improved literacy and how you know uh it just changed Europe. But that was the good news. There were also 30 years of religious wars before Europe finally reached equilibrium. Well, we're going through something that is having a greater impact uh, on, on our culture right now than I think the printing press had on the people of that day. And, and frankly, I think we're just in the kind of the, the first trimester of this. I mean, it's gonna take us a while 
to sort all this out. I think in the end we'll be stronger, just like the world, you know, <laughs> learning and all of that was better because of the invention of the printing press. But uh, you can't really know where all this is going. I want to go back in my last question before we open it up uh, to 1968 for a minute, because it wasn't just about the anti-war movement. That was also the year of the Kerner Commission, mm -hmm. and uh, we'd had multiple summers of race riots in America. And, you know, we have this news that there was another rally in Charlottesville, uh, white supremacists. And I just wonder how you see the role, how do you think about the role race has played in American politics over multiple campaigns, and very specifically in this one? Well, I think race has always been, we don't like to say this, but the, the fact is that race has always been a factor in American politics. And after all, I mean, you know, we, we wrote the Declaration of Independence and this remarkable constitution that has helped hold us together all these many years, but, you know, it was really not until the Civil War that we, you know, began to right that awful wrong. And there's no way that you can look back on it and say that was that was a good thing. And, and we're seeing now uh, it still comes into play. I mean, one of the reasons that the country is now so, uh, the shift in American politics has changed. Lyndon Johnson, when he passed the 1965 uh, Civil Rights Bill, he said, I have lost the South for my party for a generation because, you know, he took on his own party. It was the it was the Democrats who were the were the segregationists and he took them on and exactly what he said was gonna happen was gonna happen. I mean, uh, when I moved to Washington in nineteen sixty nine there was not a single uh, statewide office holder uh, in Texas uh, who was a Republican. They were all Democrats, including all the all the judges because uh, judges, district judges, are elected uh, in Texas, as are the Supreme Court judges, uh, they're now all Republicans. Uh, probably the only place in Texas where, where a white liberal uh, could be elected now would be around Austin and somewhere uh, in that territory, but uh, the Democrats in Texas are, are mostly uh, Hispanics now and, and, and live in the Valley. and and everything else uh, is Republican. What's kind of interesting is what happened in Texas. Uh, Hillary Clinton carried all of the, uh, the big metropolitan centers, uh, except for Tarrant County and Fort Worth, uh, where, where Republicans carried that. But outside those uh, areas, uh, it, was all, it, was all, uh, it was all Republican. Hmm. But uh, race has always been there, and it's always going to be there, and we, we, we're a long way from where we were even in 1965, but we, we haven't resolved this yet, and I think every day's news brings more evidence of that. Let's see. We have some questions from the audience. I'm going to privilege students right there, Ming. All the way to the back. Thank you very much. I am a TV producer from China, and I was Nicole's student from last year. <coughs> Thank you. Yep. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I remember that um, uh, you said in a previous interview that people will play drunk a drink game when they heard. The <laughs> yeah. I have never seen anything like Trump before. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That I can totally understand the shock and the trauma after Trump's election. But I also heard from uh, Alex Maddow, the chief editor of Breitbart News, and he said that uh, he, he said the, the audience of Breitbart feels they were bullied by liberal media. And he, he thought the mainstream media uh, went too far on Trump's hatred rather than covering the normal people's life, like the people from Rust Belt and the Kilibilis. And do you agree with that? And what do you think mainstream media could do to connect, reconnect with those people and speak a language they are comfortable with? Like well, uh, you know, I don't really, and, and I don't mean this in a way of criticism because uh, certainly everybody is welcome to their opinion. I don't consider Breitbart News uh, exactly a down the middle of uh, here's both sides of the issue kind of uh, 
kind of organization. I will say uh, the stories they've, they've written about me and things that I've said, uh, they pretty much quoted me correctly. Sometimes they would agree with what I said and sometimes they didn't. So I don't uh, criticize them on that point, but I, I think we have to I think we have to spend more time talking to voters than we did. And that's one of the things I talk about in the campaign. I think too many times we depend on polling. And and now we've come to this sort of uh, all these analytics and stuff. I did an interview with uh, uh, Peter Hart, who's kind of the dean of American pollsters. And he said analytics and all that can, can tell you a whole lot about people, but he can't tell you what's in their hearts. And I thought that was a I thought that was a very interesting and, and and a true statement. You know, in the days when newspapers could afford to have enough reporters to do it, they used to go out and they'd knock on doors and just ask people face to face. You know, what do you think about this? Who are you going to vote for? And all that kind of thing. They'd go to new car dealer openings and they'd talk politics to people there. And and it was it was not only were they finding information. Uh, but they were also helping along the, the process, uh, 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 getting people to talking about politics. And uh, so much of that, you don't have the people to do that anymore, and so they depend uh, too much on these polls. And, you know, some of these polls are good. Uh, the big polls, the uh, New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, CBS, all of us, uh, they, were, they were pretty close on the uh, on the on the popular vote, but we we really uh, missed it uh, on 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 those battleground states, and and I think we're just going to have to do a better job of that, and and we've just got to get we've got to talk to people more uh, to find out, as I say, what's in their heart, not so much which which candy bar do they buy, and all this information that we now have access to uh, through through the internet, but. You know, social media played such a big role, and we're only now understanding just how big a role it was. I mean, uh, when, you know, 60 Minutes did this story uh, Sunday where uh, Facebook had four people working inside the Trump campaign in Trump Tower in New York, helping them to know how to focus their ads and all of that. they offered the same service to, to Hillary Clinton's campaign, and she, uh, uh, they, they turned it down. Uh, but uh, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And, and, you know, we never, there's never been a campaign that we couldn't have covered it better. But I think, all in all, I think we did a pretty good job, at least the mainstream media, uh, on this campaign. But there are a lot of things that we have to just, you know, be at our, our, we have to be our, playing our best game when we, when we do this. Next question. Okay. Well, we got two back here. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I can hear you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm Alex Olovich and I'm uh, at the D1 in the Kennedy School. And um, I want to ask you, you think there's a role for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to reallocate its resources away from national coverage to supporting uh, local coverage because it seems like uh, the NPRs, NPRs like their best shows are commercially viable uh, and if their goal is to step in where markets are failing, it seems like the local level is where we're most lacking. So like, what, what should CBD be? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to tell them what they ought to be doing right. uh, with, with the money that, that they, they have and, and they raise. But the real crisis to me in, in journalism right now is at the local level. Uh, because if we don't find some entity to do what we've always expected of, of local newspapers, uh, and that is to keep an eye on local government, uh, we'll have corruption in this country like we've never seen before. So I think, I think the more we can focus on that part uh, of the journalistic landscape, I think it the better it is for everybody. I, I'm not sure, and I, I say this in sorrow because it's generational with me. I mean, all my life I've gotten up and the first thing I did when I got up in the morning was read the newspaper. And I mean, holding the newspaper, going through the newspaper, is just, just a part of my life. But I'm not sure newspapers are gonna survive uh, under that model. There's just, there's just no way to find the money that you, you need to support that 
so I think most of them will go to uh, some sort of digital product. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. The digital product has to be better than the, the paper product. Uh, and what makes my boss, uh, David Rhodes at CBS, always says, uh, the secret is if you have information that other people need, uh, you can find a way to find to get a rent for that. And I mean, that's basically uh, what the local newspaper does. People are going to need to know where their tax money is going, what time school starts, uh, all these things that having to do with their lives. If you can put together that in some way uh, that that people will find it relevant, uh, then they'll they'll subscribe to it. Uh, they'll pay for it because they need to. And uh, that's that's what we all have to aim for, I think. But it is a really, really serious problem and why what the Post and the Times are doing is such good news for all of journalism, because I think there, there are ways to to shape that model to work at the local level. Yes. Could you um, talk about the influence that money has on the news industry as opposed to, you know, we often talk about what um, influence money has on politicians, but uh, particularly with the 24-hour news networks um, and their, you know, the importance of television ratings when it comes to when that conflicts with uh, duties as newscasters. Well, uh, you know, people have always asked me over the years, have you ever felt any pressure from sponsors and that sort of thing. And and the honest answer, and I mean, I'd swear on the heads of my children, no, nobody has ever come to me uh, and tried to, you know, pressure me. Uh, but the other part is, these are private enterprises, and, and they're not charities, and they shouldn't be. And so, you know, saying, well, you're not aware of, of the ratings, uh, everybody thinks about the ratings and but I think I think we pretty much keep that uh, in perspective but in the book you do talk about the role cables played in shaping the, yeah. the political dynamic well I think they have because they're there I mean I, I and they're there all the time and the incentives and, are different than in broadcast and and uh, you know they're trying to they're trying to cover the moment that's I mean I, I don't think uh, you're going to stir up a lot of intellectual curiosity, you know, about uh, some cable news. And I don't say that. I think they do a good job of doing what they're doing. But uh, uh, there's no question that, that you know, they're going, to, they're going to go for the story that they think, think that most people think is most important. And maybe most people are not correct, but they have their opinions, and, and that's the way it works, yeah. Who's next? One here, yeah. and then and then over there. Yeah. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. You. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> well, I have to share that uh, when, when I was coming along, my grandmother expected me to become Peter Jennings rather than the president. <laughs> 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 and that's but my mother did not expect me. She thought I should be a doctor. <laughs> Comparative anatomy changed my mind. People like Helen Thomas and Ed Murrow and Walter Cronkite. Yeah. All those people had kind of rock star uh, appeal, and there was limited uh, bit of the media. And we have a lot of confidence in those people. Mm -hmm. But it's now more diverse. As you say, newspapers are not hiring. They're in red. What would you say to the enterprising or journalist who's now coming out to give them encouragement to go into a market where uh, media is shrinking, it's getting a black eye, but the importance of uh, holding up a, a really good industry that holds up our democracy and holds up, uh, you know, strongly black yeah. for the state. You know, I, uh, I, I'll have to admit something. I didn't get into journalism for noble reasons. Uh, when I was in the ninth grade, I wrote a story for my junior high school newspaper, and it was the first time I'd ever seen my name in boldface type, and I just thought it looked so fine sitting there. I just wanted to see that again. And and so I kept, I was always, you know, growing up, I was the editor of the school newspaper and all that stuff in through college, and it's just what I always wanted to do. I mean, it, it, I never got into anything that it it was more fun than the fun I was having. And every job I had from the time that, you know, I was the night police reporter at the Star-Telegram and got to go behind police lines and talk directly to the cops, uh, 
uh, I just thought that was great. I thought it was fun. I, and, and I still feel that way. I, I, and I know I'm kind of odd, but the good news for me was what I wanted to be when I was a little boy is what I, I got to be when I grew up. And so I, I feel very, uh, I, I feel very uh, blessed, if, for want of a better word, for that. But uh, you should never do any job unless it's fun. I mean, uh, kids are under so much pressure now to be successful, just as, as you're, you're saying there. Uh, pick out something you really like to do. Maybe it's journalism, maybe it's something else. And if you get good at it, the success part will take care of itself. But at least it won't seem like work. And uh, so that's that's my advice to young people. But I also, and and once you get into journalism, maybe if you didn't realize that's why you got into it. Once you get into it, you understand the role that the media plays and how important it is uh, to our democracy. And uh, so so you can kind of feel good about that. But but most of all, I just say to young people, do something that's fun and. Uh, that's kind of what I did, and uh, I, I wouldn't change a thing about my life. I mean, the adventures that I got to have over the years, the people I got to talk to, but, but you know, that's just me. And maybe other people have fun doing other things because there are a lot of different ways to, uh, to uh, fu feel fulfilled. But uh, me, I just feel really lucky about the whole thing. Howard. Is it? Howard and then here. Yep. Howard was once an intern at Face the Nation, and to tell you something you didn't know about him, uh, he was generally acknowledged to be the best dancer on the Face the Nation staff. So. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought everyone would want to know that. We, we know there'll be a dance show later on today. <laughs> um, so you, you, you've written so many amazing books. Can you tell us a little bit more about what drove you to write this one, uh, what we can look out for in it, and uh, why it's so special? Well, this, this book it came about in an unusual way. Uh, uh, CSIS, the think tank in Washington, asked me if I'd be interested in doing some podcasts about the news, and Andrew Schwartz, who was the communications chief over there, uh, asked me, and I said, sure, why not? And, and so we started doing it, and we got it in about... 10 podcasts deep, and somebody said, maybe you ought to do a, a, a report on this, you know, kind of think tanks always do that. And and I said, you know, if I'm going to sit down and write a book, I want, I hope people will read it. I want it to be a book, not a, not a report. Uh, and, and so I did. So, so that's, that's basically how it came about. But I really learned a lot. And every book I've ever written, uh, the, the great joy of it is you realize at the end you you really learned something you know and i did i think we in the end we did 44 podcasts uh with various people all over journalism and uh i really got to you know know a lot of reporters better and i i like to be around reporters i mean i you know i like to talk to them and they're interesting so so that's how that's how it came about yep. Hi, I'm Melissa. I'm a student here at the Bay School, and I'm from Tarrant County. Are you really? Yes. Where'd you go to high school? Uh, Colleyville. Oh, you know, my sister lives in Colleyville, <laughs> and she was the principal of Keller High School. And she was in in that school, isn't that's in between Dallas and Fort Worth? Yeah, mm -hmm. I know exactly. Well, I mean, I think buyer beware is the first, the first, first rule, especially in this age we're in now. And the second one is, and I don't know anybody in journalism who does not do this, don't depend on one source for your information. Depend on a variety of sources. And there's some very good ones out there, and not just the big newspapers, uh, but there's some, there's really some excellent places uh, where you can get information, but you know, you have to check them out. And, uh, and and that's that's my advice. Yeah, right here. Uh, I'm Lisa Vincent of uh, APS, and I come from China. I talk with uh, a lot of Americans and to ask them, uh, did you vote for Trump? Uh, until now, I asked maybe about 20 persons. No one said they voted for Trump, but I asked why he is the president of America now. 
So they are, they are, they tell me that because you all are, uh, ask the persons who are well educated and they live in the city. If you go to the rural areas, if you go to some the countryside in the middle, and then they, they are the people who work for Trump. And uh, I, so I don't know why the, they asked me, they told me that the, the people who live in the rural areas, they only accept information from some special medias. That's why they are not, they were not affected by the mainstream media. So your book is about, you think that the information in the modern design is an overload. But for some people from some special areas, they, they only have some Yes. Well, that's I, that's exactly right, and and uh, I don't mean by that that they're they're less educated or anything uh, uh, of that nature, but when you get out into the heartland of the country, because we've had the decline of newspapers, because people there often can't afford uh, in the lower economic groups to afford the news apps that you can get on your phone uh, to follow the news here, uh, and so more and more a lot of people are depending on social media uh, for, for their news, which is fine, except that you can accept everything on social media as true. And I think that's what people have a hard time separating now uh, because uh, a, lot, a lot of times uh, things are on social media that are simply false by design. And we know the Russians have been fooling around with our when our election process they're putting stuff out there that's just just totally wrong and so that's when i say buyer beware that's what you have to be uh careful of that that the news you're getting is uh is uh, is, is true and in large parts of the country people are just getting no news and and that's absolutely correct yep. So, uh, my name is Jeff, I'm a mid-career Hi, um, So, kind of as, as a follow-on to that, um, where we talked about money into the news cycle and the press news cycle, and, and that's having an effect on, one could argue, journalism integrity, or the integrity of journalism. And there is fake news out there. Oh, yeah. What can legitimate news organizations and legitimate journalists do to help combat that? What can they do to increase that journalistic integrity and increase the amount of good information that the public is getting rather than getting their yeah. news off Facebook and making the news. Well, uh, and it's a very good question. And, and again, uh, going back to this, we can't knock down every lie as it comes out. There's just too much. We're overwhelmed by it. And, um, you know, for example, there are still a number of people in this country, I don't remember what the exact percentage is right now, who still believe that Barack Obama is not a United States citizen, that he wasn't, I mean, how much fact-checking do you have to do? Uh, the evidence is absolutely uh, without question, you know, that he was, but there are still people who believe that. And what we have to do is kind of inoculate people and help them to understand that this is happening that people are gaming this system, they're putting stuff into the system uh, that is false, uh, and, and, and try to let them know, look, this, this stuff is, that you're getting is not all true. Be careful. Be careful what you believe and, and where, where you get the information. Just because it's on the Internet does not make it true because once it gets out there, you can't get rid of it. It's like crabgrass. It, it, you know, you think you've gotten it, eradicated it, and then it pops up over here. But like this poor man in in uh, in Washington who owned that uh, pizza parlor, where you know that story was circulated that uh, Hillary Clinton was running a porn ring in the basement. Well, there's not even a basement in the place. But you know, somebody came up there from, shot a, a weapon in there because he was trying to get down to the basement and rep rescue those children. We all know it's not true. There, there's no, there's not a scintilla of, of evidence to make you think it's true, but there are still, you can look at polls, there are still people who believe that it's true. And, and so you have to kind of do what you can to make people aware that this, that this is what is happening. But, but, and because you'll never, you know, you'll never win just trying to answer one lie after another. So, Bob, in your traveling around the country over the course of your career, you know, one of the reasons people don't want to 
one of the reasons people still believe things that aren't true is that they don't want to trust people like you. And have you, you're, 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 you're a recognizable face. You're like a, in people's living rooms. You're, you're a well-known celebrity newsman. Do you, have you noticed a change in people's attitudes towards you over the years? Do you feel like when you're in the middle of America today that, you, you know, you, you don't have the, the respect or the trust that you once did? Have you? You know, it's, it's a very interesting question. And, and I have to say, for the most part, in person, face to face with people, they, uh, they still at least, you know, they're not, they're not rude to you. Now, there once in a while you're going to run into to that person, but most of the time they're not. But then if you go in and look at what they say to you on the Internet, you know, that's an entirely different thing. I mean, when they have that cloak of anonymity, I mean, you know, they say things. I mean, you know, I don't look at it. I mean, I used to, I used to, in the snail mail days, when I would get an, an especially vitriolic uh, letter, if it didn't have obscenities in it or something like that, I, I never answer anything like that. But when I'd get some, something where somebody was wildly critical of me, uh, I would just call them up. You know, call them on the phone. I say, "Hey, it's Bob Schieffer. I got a letter here. I'm, I'm not sure it's from you, but it has your name at the bottom of it, and uh, I just wonder what I could do for you." And and I actually had a person say, and "People, you know, would be just overwhelmed." And, and I actually had a person who said, well, "Well, you know, I didn't realize you were a real person. <laughs> what did they think I was? You know, but." Yeah, but there's no question that, you know, we're getting challenged at every turn now. And, and, you know, you can't say anything now that somebody is not going to uh, take issue with it. Because, again, the country is just so hyper right now. And it's just this period that we go through. Yeah. All right. Last question right here. Thank you for your time. I just had a quick question about the media earnings. Sorry, the media what? Owners. Uh, earnings? Owners. Oh, owners. Okay. Sorry, strain accents. Um, and basically, um, and talking about the strain, in the past, the media moguls like you know, River Murdoch made their money in these businesses, obviously built tremendous fortunes. But now the new owners of these businesses, like you talked about, Jeff Bezos, in Asia, we have the same thing, Jack Ma buying traditional media assets. Um, they don't need to make their money in this business. And in fact, they're now not making assets. Really. So what's their angle? What do you think the strategic rationale for guys like Bezos, guys like Jack Ma is? I think the, the, I've come to know Bezos a little bit. Not, not we don't run around together, obviously, but I mean, you know, I see him from time to time at conferences and things like that. I think he wanted to buy the Washington Post because, number one, my sense, he just saw it as a challenge. I think he also thought it was important. Uh, he said, you know, if this, if this were a donut shop, I wouldn't have bought it. Uh, but he thinks... He thinks that uh, journalism is is an integral part of uh, of uh, of democracy, and I think that was part of it. But I mean, just watching him, and and I to me, he's the most fascinating person in America right now. Just watching him operate, I'm thinking that the main reason he did this was just to see if he could do it, to see if he could restore uh, this newspaper and uh, and turn it into a viable business because. When he, I went to the grand opening of the Post New uh, headquarters in Washington, and uh, it, it, it was just a great, wonderful experience. And he said, you know, he said, I didn't buy this to make money, but he said, I want this to be a successful business. He said, because it has to be if it's going to work and, and work the right way. So, uh, I think he just saw it as a challenge and for all, all the right and good reasons. And, and I also say I, I'm really glad that he did it. If, if the Post is successful, I think Jeff Bezos will be given, uh, will be remembered for the person who, who saved American newspapers. And uh, I, 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 I mean, I, I really believe that. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Bob. I have one last question. Uh -oh. In a year of surprises, what surprised you most? <laughs> you know, I, I guess I'm getting too old to be surprised. I, 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 I thought, you know, as I said, 
so many times and it you know it became this drinking game among my younger colleagues at CBS that I'd never seen anything like this and I said it so much that every time I said it they'd you know another uh, drink uh, luckily they had designated drivers but I, I don't it's hard for me to separate it I mean I, I was not surprised that Trump got the nomination. Uh, I must say I was surprised that he won the presidency because after, you know, he violated every rule in the book, and yet uh, it didn't it didn't seem to matter this time around. So I, I don't know. I, it, it'd be hard. I'd have to sit down and think about that too. Well, maybe that's for the, the next most, book. Yeah, well, that's it's something to start on, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you. We're looking. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.